If you're a Christian, how important is it to at least have some familiarity with other world religions? What do you know about Islam? Do you have any friends who are followers of Muhammad? It is believed that 1.9 billion people identify as Muslims, a number second only to Christians. Islam is having an increasing effect on American religion, culture, and politics. How should a Christian witness his or her faith to a Muslim? Is there a difference between Islam and what we call radical Islam? That's today's topic on this episode of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathard with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, when it comes to Islam, I think our listeners may run the gamut between, on one side, I'm not at all interested in knowing anything about Islam, to, on the other side, I need to get educated about the religion of Muhammad. Where do you fall in that spectrum? I think most people are not interested in things that they don't have any kind of contact with. So I teach a comparative religions class at the local college, which I've talked about before. Um, I'm assigned the religions that we have to discuss in there. And when we get to Confucianism, I, I usually have to try and beg the people to pay attention. I, no, nobody knows any Confucianist or Taoist. Um, Islam, though, there, there's a lot of contact that we have with, with Islam. I mean, Islam's a growing religion in the United States. And the city closest to us here where we're recording has, um, I think, 15, 20 years ago, there was probably one or two mosques, and there and there are a lot more than that now. Also, since um, 9-11 uh, in the United States, in the West, and there have been uh, two bombings in London and attacks on journalists in uh, Europe, uh, people in the West are much more interested in Islam because it seems like it's coming in contact with their lives. So... Uh, I, I don't know of a lot of people who try and get down into the nitty gritty of Islam, but a lot of people are trying to understand it more and more, which I think is a welcome thing. I, you know, for a while after nine 11, all of our, um, talking heads on TV, basically their take on, on, um, you know, the terrorist attack of nine 11 was, uh, these are insane people. They're just crazy. They're insane, uh, which is completely dismissive of, I think it's worthwhile digging in. I, these people were not crazy, but why did they do what they did? What were the motivations behind that? And and more and more people are starting to ask that, starting to ask that question as time goes on, and it doesn't look like the tensions between uh, so-called East and so-called West are going to calm down anytime soon. And uh, especially uh, recently, you know, at the time of recording, we're going on you know three or four months since uh, the Israel-Hamas war has been happening and these these conversations are going to keep on going and which i think is good that, that we're talking about this and people are asking questions about this sort of thing all right let's take it back to the beginning let's talk about abraham isaac and ishmael how do these old testament figures fit into our discussion of christianity and islam yeah so in terms of who abraham was abraham is uh, an extremely important character for all three of the so-called monotheistic Western religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, for Judaism, Abraham is their founding father. 
Um, not that he did anything spectacular, but God called Abraham and made promises to him to give him offspring that would inherit the whole world and introduce blessing to the whole world, introduce salvation and reverse of the curse. Uh, Jews believe that the promise was fulfilled uh, to Isaac, the child of promise, the, the child that was born to Abraham and his true wife, Sarah, by a divine miracle. Um, not a virgin birth, but you know, when people are 199 years old and they have a baby, it's a divine miracle. And that child of promise, Isaac, is the people is the guy through whom Jews trace their ethnic heritage back through to Abraham. Muslims, on the other hand, um, believe that uh, many Muslims believe that it was Abraham's firstborn child. The firstborn is the one who gets the promises, and that firstborn child was. Um, um, uh, Ishmael, uh, the father of the Arab people. And so they too believe that the promises to Abraham are good and legit, but that they are the recipients of these through Abraham's firstborn child. As far as Christianity is concerned, uh, St. Paul is pretty clear about this. You can read about this in Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3. Paul believes, and this is the Christian church's belief, Paul believes that the promises made to Abraham were not fulfilled by ethnic Jews in general or ethnic Muslims, but by one specific man, the offspring of Abraham, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the only one who gets the promises that the land is going to belong to him forever and that he is going to bring blessing to the whole universe. He's going to bring salvation, reverse of the curse. Paul goes on to insist, though, that Everybody, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their gender or their socioeconomic status, everybody who's been baptized into Jesus, since they are now inside of Jesus, the one true offspring of Abraham, gets all those promises too. They're heirs along with Jesus to the promises made to Abraham. So essentially, uh, Paul connects Abraham to believers in Jesus, through Jesus. It almost sounds like with... Abraham being the common denominator here among these three monotheistic religions that the overlaps ought to be pretty thorough, but the strife among those three religions is real, and none of no member of any of the three is willing to compromise his particular vision of either God or Abraham or Jesus in order to accommodate the other two. So that creates kind of a quandary. It seems like, you know, if, if all three religions had just entirely different origins, well, then it'd be easier to process. But since there is this commonality, that makes it more difficult. At least it does in my eyes. Can, right, you, can yeah. you help me out? Well, it, 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 it intensifies it, actually. I, it, it would be like if a, if a rich old man had a, a gazillion bazillion dollars and he said on his deathbed i'm giving my gazillion bazillion dollars to my one true son and he actually had three sons and so you couldn't divide it because it was going he said it's going to the one true son and then the question is who's the one true son and all three are going to say and nobody's going to say well it's not me I'm, I'm not i don't get it um personal opinion this is going to shock everybody. I think that Jesus is the best deal here because if Jesus is the one true child of Abraham, 
then both Jews and Muslims can participate as well. Like if my if it if it's necessary for me to participate in this, that my ethnic heritage goes back to Abraham, either through Isaac or through Ishmael, I'm out. Like, you know, my ethnicity is Northern European, Irish, Welsh, English, uh, Gentile, some Slav. Yeah, I, I'm not. I, I'm not an Arab, and I'm not. Uh, 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 I'm not. I don't come from a Semitic background. But if Jesus is the one true Jew, and by being baptized, I can participate in the salvation of the cosmos as well, then that's best for me. It's also good for Jews and Muslims because they too, they could any Jew or any Muslim can participate in this by being baptized into Jesus Christ. We all can. And that's Paul's point in Galatians 3. Is this is universal. It's not limited to one group of people. You, anybody can participate in it. Just my opinion, I think Jesus is the way to go. So correct me if I get any of these details wrong. I'm thinking of going back to the history of Abraham not having an heir. And so Sarah says, well, why don't you go into Hagar and, and you know, we'll get, you'll get a son out of that and then you'll have an heir. And then God comes along after that and says, you're going to, by this time next year, you're going to have a son from your wife, right. which as you pointed out was miraculous. So now there is Ishmael by Hagar and Isaac by Sarah and immediately this goes bad. It's there's strife. Sarah wants Ish, uh, Hagar kicked out of the tent. You know, right. didn't want to see her anymore. There's difficulty between Ishmael and Isaac. It it's bad right from the beginning. Right. Is the strife that we're seeing right now in the Middle East descended from this, or is it improper to connect those two things? No, I, I mean it goes back. It's like uh, I mean even. It, People will use religion to fight wars. They'll use irreligion to fight wars. It's hard to separate. Like, how far back does this go? I, but it, from like, what are the current concerns? But I do think that this goes back. I mean, the, the 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 strife between Israel and Hamas right now. I mean, clearly is over. Who does that stretch of land along the eastern end of the Mediterranean? Who does that belong to? Does it belong to the Jews? It's their ancient ancestral home that was promised them by God. Or does it belong to the Muslims? It's their ancient ancestral home that was promised to them by God. And there's not going to be any agreement about that. And um, I, I do think it goes back to that. Now, not that the, there aren't political concerns that also get added to the to the soup as years go on and personal concerns and financial concerns. Um, but I do think it, it's, it's, it's not unfair to trace the tensions between um, the Semitic families all the way back to the very beginning. I think that's legit. So this is kind of a weird question, but sometimes I wonder if since Abraham fathered Ishmael by Hagar, if God had said to Abraham before that moment, hey, stay out of the tent of Hagar. Don't go in there. The world might have avoided centuries of religious conflict, including the conflict that is happening now. Do you ever wonder why our all-knowing God permitted the sequence of events that has pitted the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael against one another for all these millennia? I, uh, no, I mean, I— You don't wonder that. Well, I mean, everybody wonders that, but it's, it's, it's much too big. It's just too—it's, you know, it's—that's it's, that's a, that's a surface version of the question, how can a good and all-powerful God 
be in charge of a world where there's evil. It, it goes back, you know, if why did God let Adolf Hitler be born? Couldn't he have given him like scarlet fever and killed him when he was six months old? And think about all the people that would have been saved. You know, what, what, if, what if God came down when the snake appeared to Eve in the Garden of Eden and just said, hey, knock it off and snap the snake's neck in two? Wouldn't everything be better? We do not know why God has chosen to allow evil in his good world. Um, we just don't have the answer to that question. We don't know why God didn't stop Abraham from, you know, knocking up his servant girl and starting all this off. I, I, we don't know, but he did. And he loves both Jews and Muslims. He's participated himself in the evil that's come from that. He himself became a human being and um, and died in order to rescue both Jews and Muslims. But why didn't he do it a different way? I just don't know. I mean, it's a great question. And I think about, I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to personal things, you know, like, you know, why was my brother-in-law taken so suddenly from our family or, um, you know, questions like that. Sure. But on a big level, I, I just don't, every time I ask those questions, what actually, whether on a big level or on a little level, I never do come up with a satisfactory answer except for God is God. I will not. be done. Yeah. So for many, particularly in our country, Islam is characterized by terrorism. The French think tank Fondapol says that between 1979 and 2021, there were at least 48,000 Islamist terrorist attacks worldwide, which resulted in more than 210,000 deaths. If my perspective is an American living over here pretty far from the Middle East if my perspective on Islam is negative because of statistics like this and what I read in the or watch in the news, do I need to make an adjustment uh, in order to achieve some kind of balanced view because it's been so skewed by all the negative coverage of the last several decades? Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know about making an adjustment. Uh, be becoming friends with a Muslim is a good start. I mean, m Muslims who are good citizens and take care of their neighbors and, you know, love their wife or their husband and their kids, they, they're not going to be on the news. So we're definitely going to hear about the terrorist attacks. And, and that's, I mean, that's the way it's going to be. Like, there's no point in a news story about nice people. But when you get to meet Muslims, um, what you find out is that many of them are just as horrified. I'll, um, I've got a good friend who's, um, and I've probably mentioned her in here before. She's from Iran and, um, her family, the people that she knows in Iran, all of them are against the Ayatollah's regime. It's 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 not like you know we think about well you know all the Iranians are you know they fund terrorism and uh, uh, not all Iranians are like that. And in fact, most of them aren't. But the ones that have power since 1979, since since the overthrow of the Shah, the, the ones who have power can be violent but when you actually meet muslims who live on the street even um even persian muslims they're against that they're against the violence they're there for peace and you know my friend is not she, she's not a secularist she's a, she's a devout muslim but she does not believe that her religion is compatible with violence against innocent people and um once you start meeting people like that, you say, well, it's actually kind of more well-rounded than if you just watch the news, 
you would be tempted to think that every Muslim walking the street is looking to kill somebody, and that's just not the case. But the only way to really get that is actually just to meet some meet some real Muslims. That's probably the best way to do it. For us, Jesus is at the very center of our Christian faith and proclaimed as the very Son of God. Islam teaches that Jesus was a great prophet, but not the Son of God. So we do have some common ground here that encourages kind of a link between the two religions. You know, we could massage that, and you bringing up your friend that you know who is opposed to uh, violence in the name of Allah, we could massage that into some kind of, what, peacefulness? Or should we just take a view of Islam as simply a false religion? I... um. I mean, I, so, so if Christianity is true, all other religions are going to be wrong at the points where they disagree with Christianity. I, the way that you framed the question was a good one, though. I, there's, a lot of, there's a lot about Islam that is a point of contact. Uh, for instance, monotheism. And I know that Muslims, they, they really hate the doctrine of the Trinity. They don't understand it. Um, you know, they believe that Christians worship three gods. Um, Muhammad actually got it wrong in the Quran. That's that's the kind of thing that would get me in trouble with a Muslim. But um, we're, we're, somehow he had heard that the Trinity meant God, Jesus, and Mary. Um, we don't worship Mary. He's not a part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is. Um, but uh, but generally speaking, we're against polytheism. Like I, when I say generally, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. We, we all agree that polytheism, that paganism is wrong. So there's a point of contact there. Uh, there's a point of contact with the question of holiness. God is a holy God. One of the main beefs that Muslims in the East have with the West is Western decadence, Western sexual immorality, Western financial immorality. I, I think that the Christian church should say, you are right. The West has become incredibly morally decadent, and we can agree with them about that. Jesus is a tougher one because both both Islam and Christianity recognize Jesus, but because Islam refuses to recognize that God could exist in human form, Jesus has to be just one of the prophets. Whereas for Christians, the heartbeat of Christianity is, is that Jesus that's is a deal the incarnate God, right? So that's um, that that's that's a place where the that, that there's not going to be a lot of contact, but. I mean, that, that's a big one. I mean, obviously, that's the main one is the, the question of who is Jesus. Muslims, um, a lot of their worship is the same as ours. A lot of their uh, their notion of charity and devoutness. For, 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 for Islamic religious life, the five pillars are central to, their, to, to the way they think about their responsibilities towards uh, Allah and how to submit to him which is the main goal of Islam is submitting to God, which also, again, that's a, that's a good, that's a point of contact. Christians believe we should submit to God too. So for Muslims, you know, you have the, uh, the, the Shahada, the, the, the confession. Um, um, I confess that Allah is God and that Muhammad is his prophet. Uh, you have uh, the daily prayer five times praying towards Mecca uh, Muslims are required to do this. Not all of them do this, but the the, the serious ones do. Um, you have the zakat, the the giving of charity. Two point five percent of your annual income should go to the poor. 
Uh, you have uh, the month of fasting in Ramadan, and then you have the Hajj, which is at least once in your life you should make a pilgrimage to Mecca. And this is one of the places where you know you can see parallels between Christian faith and practice, and that you know the confession that God alone is God, um, uh, charity to the poor, uh, daily prayer, uh, even fasting. Not required for Christians, but um, you know Jesus talks about fasting and encourages it from time to time. Um, but, but really, although there are parallels, for instance, in religious observance and in the notion of submission, what's missing in Islam that you get in Christianity is not just submission to God, but adoption by God. So that what we do before the face of God is not just service. See, if the goal is, if God is nothing but the holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and holy, H-O-L-Y, other, then all I can do before him is submit to him and serve him and try to do the rules and try to do what he wants me to do. But if God isn't just the holy and holy other, but he's also my very own father, then it's not just about submission, although that's important. It's also about adoption. It's about me being his child and having the freedom to call him father and have the freedom to know that he actually loves me regardless of what I do, but simply because of who I am related to him in Jesus Christ. And to embrace that by praying to him, not as an act of service, but as an act of relationship and love. And um, this is this is where this diverges. I mean, you could talk about, you could frame it in terms of uh, works versus grace, and that's not a horrible thing to do. For, for Muslims, the notion that God would freely accept me regardless of anything I do, is foreign. Um, unfortunately, for many Christians, it is too, I guess. But for Christianity, that's the heartbeat of it, is that in Christ, God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ. And that's the one thing that makes Christianity so special, is that God loves me, no questions asked. I'm thinking of two people who may be listening to us now. One of them falls sort of into the camp of, can't we just all get along let's find common ground and let's just all get along. And then there's another person who says the doctrines and teachings of, of my religion are all important to me and I am prepared to die on that hill. With those two perceptions before us, how do those two people communicate with one another? Uh, one seemingly appears to be willing to compromise in order to promote peace. The other is not going to compromise. And if it leads to strife, even death, that's where it's going to be. Can those two people communicate? Probably not. Thankfully, those aren't the only two options. You know, you have the, um, uh, the you know, the conservative option is commitment to truth. And uh, the liberal option is commitment to freedom. And as long as those are hard set, they aren't going to coexist very well because you have, you know, you have on the one hand, maybe order and freedom, order and freedom aren't going to go to, if you have too much freedom, you lose order. If you have too much order, you lose freedom. So there's really no way for those type, two types of people to talk to each other. And unfortunately, that's the culture we're living in where if we don't agree, we can't talk. Christians though, real Christians who shouldn't fall into either of those two camps 
are called to, bo- to, to, to be both radically committed to the person of truth, Jesus Christ, and, and never waver from that. And at the same time, realize that radical commitment to the person of truth means radical commitment to loving the other, even when they disagree with me. So Christians are called to give up their own life for the sake of those that hate them, not just for those who love them. You know, Peter says, you know, if if you are good to those who persecute you, that's no credit to you. But if you're good to those who mistreat you, that's to the glory of God. So be prepared to in gentleness and respect to give an answer to those who have a question about the hope that lies within you. So Christians are called to be neither of those things, and yet somehow both of those things, to be radically committed to truth, but also completely open and welcoming to everybody, especially to those who disagree with them. It would be great if we could all get back to a world where we can love each other even when we disagree with each other. You know, so you see the bumper stickers, the coexist bumper stickers, and I'm actually all for those. Except for, usually people, I think that people who put coexist bumper stickers on their car mean you have to give up any sort of notion that you're right if we're going to coexist. I disagree with that. The other reason that somebody, and most people don't do this, but if you could put a coexist bumper sticker on your car and say, yeah, we can coexist. If everybody agrees with me, I'll exist with all of you. killing each other. Yeah. But what Christians should do is say, we don't have to agree with each other. I can't force you. I actually, uh, 15 minutes ago, no longer than that, because we've been here in the studio probably longer than that. Uh, about an hour ago, I had a conversation with a girl. I preached at a chapel um, up at the local our, our local high school and a local uh, Lutheran high school. And um, a girl came up to me afterwards. And I, I've known her a little bit, but we've never had a lot of conversations. And she told me, she said, I'm an atheist. I'm not not an atheist yet, she said. But your chapels make me think and question about this commitment. And I've really been studying and thinking about it. And I just want you to know I appreciate the way you've talked to us. And I'm thinking about it. I'm not there yet, but I am thinking about it. And I thought, I was just real proud of her because she refused to say, well, I'm an atheist and this guy's a Christian. So, you know, screw him. I'm not talking to him. She she really did the the intellectually and personally courageous thing, which is I'm going to give this guy a serious listen. I'm going to take him seriously. I know he likes me and cares for me, and I'm going to like him and care for him too enough to listen to him. And she she didn't make any sort of commitment. She didn't say, you've changed my mind. She just said, let's talk about this. And that's the way we should be. You know, atheists atheists and Christians, Christians and Muslims, left and right. We should be engaging in this marketplace of ideas. And as a Christian, I should be more motivated to do this than anybody because I don't need to defend my truth. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist pastor uh, back in England in the 1800s said, I don't need to defend Jesus any more than you need to defend a lion. The lion's perfectly capable of defending himself. Also, I don't need to fight against people who disagree with me. I don't have any charge of what they think or what they believe, but the Holy Spirit does. And if I live a life of Christ-like love before the face of people around me and just say, Holy Spirit, you do what you're going to do. I'm going to I'm going to be here with Jesus. Holy Spirit, you take over this thing. Christians of all people should be loving and welcoming to others because they know that they can be. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to fight against other people. Holy Spirit does all that for us. So what if I were to say, 
You know, I spend my time reading and studying my Bible. I focus my energies in faithful Christian worship. I don't need to be exploring other religions that are clearly incompatible with the teachings of the Bible. I'm out. What would you say? Well, I'd say, first of all, the, the other talking about if the other religion is Islam, it's not clearly incompatible with the teaching of the Bible. There's lots of overlap. For instance, the name Abraham pops up there. The name David, Noah, Moses, Jesus, for Pete's sake. Pops. So it's not incompatible. There needs to have a conversation here. We disagree deeply about who Jesus is, of course. But the fact that they are, they are evoking Jesus and take him seriously means that this conversation should happen. The other thing is this. I'm talking like a Christian now. Every missionary knows that if you're going to go over to a foreign mission field, you have to learn the language of the people there. You can't. So I, I've really good for Angel, and I have really good friends who are missionaries in Thailand. And one of the first things they did when they got to Thailand was spend the first six months to a year in language school before they were doing any sort of like uh, witnessing or church planting at all. Well, that's necessary. You can't communicate with those people if you don't know their language. I consider what we do in this podcast to be something similar. You can't communicate with seekers. You can't communicate with Buddhists. You can't communicate with Muslims. You can't communicate with agnostics and atheists if you just say, well, I don't care about what they think. I'm a Christian. Okay, fine. Go home, get in your closet, and be a Christian in private. But that's not really being a Christian. You're called to be salt and light in the earth. And so that means that it behooves us who are called to be salt and light in the earth to learn the language of the people that we're ministering to, which means knowing what makes them tick, knowing what turns them on, knowing what turns them off, knowing what they hold dear, knowing the grammar that they use, not just linguistically, but culturally, religiously, psychologically, relationally. And so I, I consider, Chuck, what, I, what you and I are doing on this podcast, I consider to be an important part of helping us equip people to speak the language of people that they're going to come in contact with so that they can have these conversations. And that goes for Islam as well. Finally, we Christians believe that Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. I focus my energies in faithful Christian worship. I believe that too. And that means that Jesus died for Muslims too. For some people, that may come as kind of a shock. I read a statistic from a study published by Baylor University that 10.2 million Muslims have converted to Christianity. I don't know how reliable that statistic is, but there it is. I don't know. I probably had a, a prejudice in my mind that no Muslims have ever uh, converted to Christianity, but apparently it can be done and has been yeah. done. So how would you witness your Christian faith to a practicing Muslim. More and more all the time, it's happening too. I mean, so, I mean, not, not all Muslims, many Muslims aren't getting what they need out of Islam. The sense that God is holy is definitely a draw in a world gone crazy with licentiousness. And that, that's what, what is licentiousness? Over-the-top, self-indulgent freedom. And this is why Islam's on the rise in Europe, for instance. Because you have a culture that commits itself to the, the, the liberalism project since the beginning of the Enlightenment for the past 300 years. People are sick of it. Okay, I'm free. I get to do what I want, and I hate it. And now here comes Islam along, and it offers meaning and purpose. And many times the Christian church in Europe has it because it's caved in. It said, oh, yeah, freedom is the main goal. Uh, Christianity, that's good, too. You can come worship here. You know, Jesus, he's God. 
But Islam says, no, we give you purpose and meaning. But many Muslims want more. They don't just want purpose and meaning. They want to know that the God of the universe loves and accepts them. This is where Christianity can come in and say, there's a community where you are completely loved and accepted by everybody else and by a God who deeply loves you and wants to call you daughter, wants to call you son in Jesus Christ. And by offering that up as this this life of being loved by the eternal God, who you can call Abba, this is this is powerful. This is, you know, witnessing to Muslims, this would be my main point of contact is to say, look, your God is holy, yes, but God also loves you and in Jesus Christ wants a relationship with you. You know, when I looked this up, I found that, I guess I was thinking that conversion to Christianity by Muslims must be more or less a recent phenomenon. But if if you Google it and you look it up, it's been going on since... Islam arrived in in the seventh century. Yeah, um, it's been done, I guess, in every generation. So I'm thinking that should be some encouragement to a Christian who may have a Muslim friend, maybe thinking about witnessing to that Muslim friend, yeah. and should not be thinking this is a completely impossible task. It's not impossible. If Islam and Christianity are just sociological mindsets like conservatism and liberalism are, then yes, you're not going to convert anybody. You know. However, if Christianity is a relationship with the living God, powered by the Holy Spirit, and if that living God can do the impossible, then it is totally possible that your Muslim friend can come to faith in Christ when introduced to him. In fact, Jesus promises this in the Gospel of John. I will draw all men to myself. And he's, he's been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. He's still doing it now. Thanks for listening to this edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. If you enjoy our discussions, please tell your friends about us. And if you have questions or comments, we'd like to hear from you. Email us at this address, C-A-C-G, at stjamesglencarbon.org. For Pastor Aaron Miller and Production Manager Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rather.